Welcome to Building a Movement, the podcast where we talk with the innovators who are transforming the world of construction to build a zero carbon future, a future that stands in balance with nature for everyone. I'm your host, Josh Dorfman. Every year, millions and millions of tons of wood from old buildings find their way to landfills. You know, because the challenge is most buildings aren't coming down because they lose structural integrity or they age out. They're coming down because they don't look like a current trend. That's Eric Law, founder and CEO of Urban Machine. Eric is creating novel machines that solve a bunch of thorny problems to repurpose wood materials at scale and give them new life. And so the goal is to allow people to say, hey, we don't like how it looks, let's take it apart and let's reconfigure it. Is Eric on the cusp of unleashing a new circular economy for reusable materials within the building industry? Let's find out. Eric, welcome to Building a Movement. How's it going? Doing great. Thanks for having me, Josh. Well, it's been a few weeks since we saw each other at Green Build, and I was just incredibly impressed with your display and having a chance to hear you present about your business uh, during the conference as well. So it's a treat to have you on the show. Awesome. Thank you, Josh. Um, it was great to get to finally meet you in person at Green Build and do the panel with you, and it's great to show off our machine as well. Yeah, no doubt. So we were we were at Greenbuild. We were on opposite sides of each other of each other. Our, our booths were right, and so <laughs> we were making noise because we had people hammering into boards, right, to show how easy it is to use our boards. And then, of course, you had your machine going as well. So I think that was good because I think that attracted a lot of folks to our, our particular section of of the the conference floor. Yeah, hammering does draw an audience. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's jump in again. Just really excited to have you here. Let Let's start at the top. Talk to us about what is Urban Machine and what are you trying to accomplish? Yeah, so we are tackling the massive wood problem in terms of construction and demolition. So every year here in the United States, about 37 million tons of dimensional lumber either gets incinerated or thrown into landfills. Uh, to put that in perspective, that's equivalent to about half of what we log from our softwood forests here in uh, the United States. So it's a massive amount of material. Um, and that's coming everything from, you know, stick-built projects to teardowns, right? When people remodel a house or you tear down an old warehouse, all that wood typically gets ground up. And some of it turns into fuel, but a lot of it heads to our landfills. And so we want to turn that into a reusable product. And what's preventing that is the nails. You know, all these fasteners that do a phenomenal job holding the buildings together, they're hard to get out with labor. Um, and it's hard on the labor to do it repetitively. <clears throat> so we believe it's a great opportunity for robotics to automate that process and let the machine do that highly repetitive labor. And then you get a clean building product that can go back into the buildings. Awesome. So how did you come up with this idea? Was there a, a middle of the night eureka moment or where did this come from? Yeah, so I used to work at a large general contractor here in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I built their innovation program where we focused on bringing robotics into construction. Um, while I was there, I got involved with a sustainability initiative taking a look at the waste streams coming off of our job sites. And so we took a look at the steel and the aluminum and the glass and all these different materials. And what I quickly learned is most of those materials, when you look at the structural ones, steel and concrete have recycle paths. Um, they're not always the best, but they're not ending up in landfills. And wood was hanging to the landfill. And so I started to dig deeper and say, okay, why is this, right? Why aren't we recycling wood? And talking with some folks in the industry, and they all came back with the same thing, and they're like, it's the metal fasteners. You know, it's just too expensive to hire people to pull them out, and until you get the metal fasteners out, you can't mill, plane, or process that wood anymore. Um, you know, 
uh, you can't run it through a traditional lumber processing line, which really restricts its reusabilities. Um, and so that's where I reached out to some folks I know in the robotics industry, and I said, hey, you know, could we automate this with robotics? Um, and one of them, who's now my co-founder, Andrew, said yes, um, and off we went. Within about a month, he built the first prototype with a webcam and a nail shooter, a pneumatic nail shooter, and he was shooting nails out of a two-by-four. Okay, so you have a career. You're you're working on innovation uh, inside a very large company, and you suddenly decide, is, is that how it worked? You suddenly decided, you know what, I'm, I'm going for this. And, and if that's the case, so I'll give you a chance to answer that question, what what was driving you and what continues to drive you? Is this about a business opportunity? Is this about sustainability? Is it both? You know, so how did you make the call and then what's the, what's your motivation to do it? Yeah, so I've done a startup before. So I had a SaaS company that I started back in 2005 and sold in 2015. And so I've done the startup world before and I've worked for large companies. I've gone back and forth. Um, and I love the startup life. Um, the ability to solve problems quickly is way more doable in a startup than it is in a large enterprise, um, as you're aware of, right? <laughs> I've done both yourself. Um, and so it was like, hey, this is a problem that applies with my background, construction, technology, and passion for sustainability together. Um, let's go solve this. Um, because I love the construction industry. It's got a lot of opportunities for it. Um, lots of challenges to try and solve problems, but this was one that checked all three of those boxes. Fantastic. Okay, so you jump in, you start prototyping this machine. Tell us about the technology. How? So you've talked about how big this this problem is, and therefore this opportunity, right? How much wood is going to landfills every year, which is a a staggering number. Um, but to make this work, you need to come up with some hardware. Talk to us about about that. What's that process like? Yeah, so there's two major pieces to solving this problem. <clears throat> there's the physical removal of the fasteners, right? So literally our machines are pulling the nails out of wood and pulling staples out. And then there's the identification step. So how do you know what that fastener is, what the orientation is, how you're gonna pull it out? And so that's where the computer vision and the software comes in. So we've actually got really specialized cameras <clears throat> that are taking pictures of the material as it runs through our processing line. And from those pictures, we identify the fastener. You know, is it a screw, is it a nail or a staple? And then we look at the orientation of it and identify the best way to pick it. You know, if the nail is recessed below the surface, you gotta go dig down to get it. If it's sticking above the surface, you can just grab it and pull it out. And so a lot of it is processing a lot of images of wood with fasteners in it to train the AI software algorithm. So it gets smarter um, at identifying the best orientation for removing that particular fastener. Because um, even though the fastener types are constrained, you have three types, you know, a couple dozen different sizes, the orientations and how fasteners get smashed up and what people have done with them over the years, it's quite impressive. So when I saw your the machine that you brought to Greenbuild, that's a fairly, I mean, that may be a, a demonstration machine, but it's a fairly self-contained unit. It's not, we're, we're not talking about a massive factory, right, to do this. We're talking about, it looks like more modular type system. Is, the, is this a machine that you bring on site or... You, do you take this to a job site that's gonna that's about to be demolished? Do you go to the landfill? Where do you get the where do you get the wood? And what's it like doing this? I mean, wherever this process is happening, what is that? What is that like? 
Yeah, so you touched on the two sources of material. Um, one is large job sites. So if you're taking down a big old commercial warehouse, you know, built in the 40s, 50s, or 60s where they used a lot of wood, we would go to the job site with the system <clears throat> because, you know, you can pull, you know, 50, 100,000 board feet of material out of those buildings pretty easily, and it's really high-quality, good material. And so it's much more cost-effective to go to those job sites. But the bulk of the material, you know, your single-family homes, your apartment buildings, all your renovations, all that wood is ending up at a <clears throat> MRF or a landfill. And so that's the other place our machines will operate, is catch it before they bury it or before they chip it. Um, really, our goal is to compete with those chippers and put the chippers out of business. Okay, so in, if I'm thinking about this, then you've got to design um, a machine that has the durability to work in the field, right? This is not in a pristine factory setting where you can control all the controllables, right? You're showing up on a, on a job site somewhere outdoors. There may be weather um, a lot of different things to consider. So how does that impact how you're designing your uh, technology solution? Yeah, you know, the weather challenge is actually the easiest. You know, rain, snow, cold, hot, no problem. <clears throat> the dust and dirt um, is what absolutely destroys motors and machines and screws and cameras and all that. Um, so we are designing it to be, like you touched on with our demo unit, kind of self-enclosed unit uh, to keep the elements out of the unit itself, but still modular. Right, so this module sits on a flatbed trailer. It's got supporting infrastructure that goes with it. It's about a hundred foot long process line, rides on two 40 foot flat deck trailers. Um, but you unload it with a forklift, you put them all on a line, put some power to it, and away you go. Um, okay, all right, so you bring the trailers, you bring the machine to the job site. Uh, do you get the material for free? Yes, that sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and why is that? Are, are you doing a service if a building's about to be demolished? And, and just to so we're clear, like if, if you said going to an old warehouse or something, I mean, are we talking about wood planks? Are we talking about two by fours that you would build for a single family stick built home? Are we talking about all of the above? What what kind of material can you run through this machine that shows up on a on a trailer and then you assemble on site? Yeah, so all that dimensional wood, you know, 2x4 through 4x12s, 6x12s, all that standard dimensional wood that goes in floors, walls, you know, rafters, joists, is what we're processing and what we're aiming for. Okay, and so you get that material, so you, you call up or, or, you, or you hear about a building that's going to be demolished. How, how do you hear about buildings that are going to be demolished, or how, how do you know where to go to... Like, yeah, yeah, the demolition contractors. Right, okay. so that get called out to come take down a building. Right, it's a specialized trade. They have specialized equipment for doing this, special training, and so what we do is we work with them to go out to those sites, or they bring the material to us, because after they take down the building, either they grind it up on site, or they truck it off to those landfills for grinding, and they have to pay a tipping fee. Right, so they have to cover the trucking costs, they have to pay the fee, and those tipping fees we've learned are anywhere from you know thirty-five dollars a ton to one hundred and fifty bucks a ton. Right. And when you look at trucking costs, you know, at a buck, two bucks a mile, depending on where you are, that adds up quickly, right? When you're moving, you know, 40, 50 tons down the road of wood debris. And so they're more than happy to give us the material for free because it saves them time and money. <clears throat> so if we take it off their hands, they're like, this is a huge win for the demo guys. And then what they'll even do is look at, hey, can we slow down our process to improve the quality? Because the more wood they give us, the less money they have to spend at the landfills and the MRFs getting rid of that material. Okay, and MRF is uh, a recycling facility? Yeah, the, the, they've kind of sorting facilities. Sorting facility. Okay. Yeah, so the material recovery facilities is what a MRF stands for. 
And so that's where all the major metropolitan areas, instead of having everybody go to a landfill, <clears throat> they send them all to a MRF, and then they sort it, they grind it, and they try and recycle material out of it. Um, and there's different levels of them, but it, typically it's a group of people on a conveyor sorting material as it flows past them. Gotcha. Okay. So you you, you show up uh, on site to do this. There's uh, an economic incentive for the owner or whomever's in charge of taking that building down to work with you so they don't have to incur costs of this material going to a landfill, which is exciting. Is there... Um, are, are they, do you find that uh, on this side of your kind of supply equation, right, where you're going to pick up material, um, how much does, is there a resonance of saying, yeah, we're going to reuse this? Do people, you know, do these professionals care? Or is this just like, sweet, you're saving me money, saving me time, I'm good? We, we get both. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, some people have carbon mandates or diversion mandates tied to their permits, recyclability, stuff like that. So it depends on where they're located and it depends on their goals. You know, some of the clients we're working with, they want the material back. So they want us to clean it up and then they want to reuse it in the new building, which is phenomenal. Right. That's the best approach. If you have to take down an old building, if you can reuse that wood in the new one, then you're as sustainable as you can get. Right. Absolutely. Not, right. I, Reason something that already exists. Um, and then the next best thing is they take down the building, we clean the material, and then we sell it to somebody else. Okay. So l let's let's talk about that next piece. I mean, this is really um, quite an it's quite an awesome story, right? It's it's great when those economic incentives align. So that's how you can access material uh, effectively free of charge for your supply. Then you're going to turn around and sell it. So it sounds like in some in, in some instances there's clients who are it's one and the same. Hey, we're taking this down or we're putting something up, but let, let's talk about a different situation, right? You've now taken all this material and you have to figure out, okay, well, where are we going to sell it? Um, talk to us about some of the, like, what are those types of customers like? How do those types of interactions go? And, you know, what's the opportunity there? What are some of the challenges that you deal with to make that type of sale? Yeah, so one of the challenges is right now, reclaimed lumber is a pretty niche product. You know, it's barn wood and old historic buildings, so it's really low volume. <clears throat> we want to change that. We want to make it a high volume product, make it, you know, one that's widely available for everyone. And so what we're doing is we're spending a lot of time educating architecture firms about what's coming up, what's going to be available, and how they can use that in their new buildings to drive that demand. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, the architects specify what those finishes are, what the materials are that go into their buildings. And then we've also started working with structural engineers because the big question is, okay, can this material still carry a load, right? And the good news is yes, absolutely. You can regrade it. It can be used structurally again. Uh, you can turn it into engineered products because very similar to concrete and steel, if you keep it dry, the structural integrity stays, right? You know, just like concrete and steel, you gotta keep it dry. You know, the only other attacker that wood has is bugs, right? You gotta keep the bugs out of it. So as long as it's bug-free and dry material, you've got a very high-quality material that often is higher than what's available today at the lumberyard. Because the trees that were brought down you know, 40, 50, 100 years ago had a lot less knots, much tighter grain, a lot straighter. They've been drying in a building. So it's an incredibly stable, high-quality product that you don't get at the lumberyard today. Yeah, this is something we talk a lot about at 
planted in terms of, well, why would we, for example, go make structural materials out of grass? Uh, and when we start to look at, well, what, are, what types of trees are growing on managed timberlands today? What types of trees are used by industry? We know the trees have gotten thinner. The trees have gotten, um, well, they've, they've lost some of their uh, strength. Um, they grow so fast. There's just, they're, they're different trees. And as a society and a culture, we're not really attuned to that. We think, oh, the forest is the forest, right? Like, un unless you're really focused on it and paying attention or it's part of your job, you wouldn't really know, right, that there's this dynamic that, that you're describing, right? That wood that's, that's been in a, in a building since the 1940s or 50s is actually different wood than the wood that, that gets cut down today. So given that, and then when you go back to customers, but still you also said this is new, right? Because when people think about reclaimed lumber, it's like, oh, okay, that came off a farm from a barn or something that's kind of, it's awesome, right? It's beautiful, but it's niche. It sort of has this sort of quaint story to it. You're talking about trying to drive something mass and mainstream. And so what is that dynamic like when you're going to that that architect or that contractor who I assume knows what you know. They're like, yeah, of course, that wood is stronger, but yet this isn't necessarily how they specify material, right? So, so what is that like to kind of drive that sales process so you can get to that mainstream, you know, that mainstream building, that mainstream customer? Yep. Yeah, so the good news is everybody's super engaged on it, right? But at the end of the day, how do you get them to write the check for it and say, yep, we're going to do this? And so the big question we always get is volume. They're like, hey, you know, we've done this for projects in the past for some small accent walls or some things. And they're like, hey, the cost is really high. The volume was really low. And we're like, don't worry about that. By the time you spec this in your project, it's going to come down the road two, three, four years, right? From when they put it in their specifications, that project finally hits the ground and gets built. It could be a number of years. And, you know, when we show them the volumes of material that's available and the material we're processing, they're like, wow, no kidding. We're like, there's a lot of material out there. Don't worry about that problem. And the nice thing about the wood is if you're using it in a structural application, you can always substitute out virgin lumber for reclaimed, right? There's no loss. The only time you can't do it is architecturally. Um, and so there's essentially no risk to specifying reclaimed first and saying, hey, as a backup, go with virgin if there's no supply available. And so when you take that risk off the architects and the contractors and the developers, <clears throat> they're like, well, this is easy. So if you can sell it to us at the same cost as virgin lumber, uh, we don't have to worry about the supply because we can source either one. Then why not put it in the specs? And so our goal is to get rid of any perceived barriers or potential barriers to adopting it and then get out in the market and get those early adopters using it and showing it off in case studies, right? Because everybody likes to see the story. Everybody wants the story in their building. that says, hey, we use this material and it didn't cost us any more. That's a huge win. Okay. And so that makes sense to me. That also assumes that... And, and just to confirm that the wood, the dimensional lumber in whatever dimension you're selling is identical in terms of how it's going to install and perform, right? Everything except for stick-built homes. Okay. The only place you don't want to use reclaimed is if I'm hand-pounding nails into a 50-year-old 2x4, right? That's, we've all tried it. It's going to be hard. <laughs> sure. <laughs> fair. Very fair. So... Everything else is no problem. You can plane it, you can saw it, you can glue it, you can nail it, you know, with nail guns. Just don't hand nail it. So outside of stick build, so so what are the the major types of buildings that you see as opportunities for your product? Yes, we think mass timber is a great one. You know, mass timber consumes a large volume of material. 
um, in terms of wood volume that goes into it. It gives you both architectural and structural use of that material, which is the best value for it when you can use both properties. Um, and so we were actually piloting a mass timber product called Dow Laminated Timber uh, with a lumber yard partner who's actually going to be building a DLT press uh, for their yard, and it should be coming online here at the end of the year. What is it? Sorry, a DLT press? What is that? Yeah. So DLT is Dow Laminated Timber. Dow Laminated Timber. Okay. Yeah. So if you're familiar with mass timber, um, which is essentially cross lambs glued together in different orientations. Right? Well, let's just assume for a second that, that I'm not. If you okay. just if you would explain the yeah. process for, uh, for me and our listeners. Yeah. So in mass timber, you have a couple different products. Um, and essentially, the, the one that's most prevalent right now is called cross-laminated timber. And so that's where they orientate the boards in different directions to create panels that are typically about 8 feet wide and 60 feet long. And that can be a roof deck, it can go in multi-story buildings, apartments. And so instead of doing concrete and steel, you're doing solid wood, uh, which is great on the wood side, except for it uses a lot of glue right? Because all those different lamelles or lambs are all glued together. So at the end of its life, it's garbage. There is no recycle path for it. It is, you're incinerating or burying that massive amount of material. With dowel laminated timber, we use a wood dowel to create the mechanical connection between the wood. Um, it does have some different structural properties to it because you don't have the cross lambs. It's all linear uh, application of the lamellos or the lambs. So it doesn't have the same characteristics in terms of structure but you can still use it in a lot of buildings. There's still a lot of great use cases for it because you don't always need that cross-sectional shear or you use it with plywood. Um, but we really like it because at the end of its life, you can take the dowel out and essentially have a stack of two by fours or two by sixes or whatever you use. Um, so it's a really a great opportunity to take this reclaimed lumber, turn it into an engineered product that's got a high strength value to it, it's got an architectural value to it, and it essentially becomes a prefab component in the building. Um, so it checks a lot of boxes, right? Because you have a large prefab element. So, and then if that also sounds like there's a, even at end of life, there's still another reuse component to this product, right? So that it's, which is really uh, just extraordinary to think about for designing in that way. And in some respects, it's, um, it should be really obvious to, think about it that way. But that's not how, I mean, given this whole conversation we've just had, that's not how the that's not how the world works. That's not how this industry works, right? We design, we build, and then it's like, oh yeah, we're just gonna, unfortunately, it's gotta go to a landfill. Um, but I love that idea also of continual reuse and how you think about that product. Yep, so as long as you keep it dry and bug-free, you know, because the challenge is most buildings aren't coming down because they lose structural integrity or they age out. They're coming down because they don't look like a current trend. Right, it's all about the design appeal, and it's faster to tear down than it is to renovate or make it look like the new building. And so the goal is to allow people to say, "Hey, we don't like how it looks. Let's take it apart and let's reconfigure it." Yeah, that's pretty fantastic, Eric. In that regard, do you think about urban wood in terms of the this concept of circular economy that we keep? I mean, it sounds like you're describing circular economy. That we 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 design products to be reused over and over again, keep them out of the 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 waste stream. Um, but you actually do two things: you take products that are on their way to the waste stream, right, or like into the waste stream, going the landfill, uh, and then you re you you repurpose them and design them in such a way that they they then can be reused over and over again once you or Urban Wood get gets your hands on them. Yep. 
you got it. We want to we want to divert material from the landfills or the incinerators, so it's circular economy, and then it's also got a really good carbon story to it as well, right? Because obviously, as soon as wood's really good at storing carbon, right, much better than steel and concrete. But once you incinerate it, poof, there goes the carbon in the atmosphere. Your whole story's out the door. But if you keep that wood in buildings, you're solving the carbon story because it's much better to store it in buildings than in a landfill or up in the atmosphere. And then you're also helping with affordability because wood is still the predominant building material for residential construction, both single family and multifamily, right? And so as we saw during COVID, you know, when there's a supply chain shock, it hits the lumber industry pretty extremely. Lumber went up four or five X their traditional prices for COVID. We saw two massive spikes and that had dramatic impact on home affordability. And so if we can introduce a more stable supply of wood to help smooth out any of those spikes in the lumber supply chain, we can help with the home affordability problem here in the United States. Yeah, I think you and I are, are fully aligned on, on that approach. We, we take different, different tacks to it, right, with urban machine versus planted. Uh, but we definitely see the, the same thing in terms of carbon. And, and I think the key, as you're describing, is to design products that really fit how builders build that don't ask builders to use alternative techniques but can really be specified uh, and installed in precisely the same way so people don't really have to think too hard uh, about adopting a, a solution uh, in this case like like urban machine you got it and we're even working with the traditional lumber yards right so this way the builder calls up their regular lumber yard partner and says hey i need four truckloads of two by ten reclaimed lumber for this project for their fab facility or whatever. So they're using their existing relationships and those existing partners they have. Anywhere we can get friction out of that procurement process, we're working on it. So where are you today in terms of stage of your business? Yeah, so we are running pilot projects out in the field. Um, we did one this summer at a lumber yard, spent about four months up there at um, All Bay and American Canyon. We just shipped our machines out for a two-month pilot at a MRF facility down in San Jose, California. <clears throat> so we're going to spend two months processing their wood waste through our machine to look at the quality and quantity of material and then continue to improve on our technology, right? How do we make it faster? How do we make it more accurate? How do we get to remove more fasteners the first time? Um, those are our goals on the tech side. So are, are you personally spending time at MRFs? I've spent some time at MRFs uh, in previous previous iterations of my <laughs> career i know that's uh that's where the material is it's not always the most pleasant place to to be spending your days but in this case it sounds like that is that's the key that's where you got to be it, it is and you know it's amazing most of them are open air outdoor you know dust bowls and we went to one in los angeles a couple of weeks ago when we were down there for a conference and it was an indoor one and they ran moisture to control the dust and essentially you get this cake on everything this nasty, dusty cake of sheetrock dust and dust and dirt. And, and they were just smashing and grinding everything and sorting it up. Um, so it's interesting to learn what people are doing with it. Uh, if they have a MRF or if they're just, we talked to some folks in Arizona, they're like, no, we still have a traditional landfill. We push it in there and we run the bulldozers over it. <laughs> gotcha. It's like, okay. But they're like, hey, we got a goal to be zero waste here in 10 years. We want to test your system. Now, I, I would think in, in this instance, you're in California. That's, I would imagine, a, a good place to be working on a business like this from a, a, a policy perspective. I know that there are requirements or there, there are, I, mean, I guess you would say requirements, so, something on the books that says, here's, the, here's how much we need to be recycling. 
And <laughs> in my experience, and this goes back a number of years, uh, no one was hitting those recycling rates in California. No municipality was hitting the mandated rates. And so you show up and are people like, oh, yes, okay, finally, there's, there's a solution here that can help us really comply with what the state is telling us we need to do. Absolutely. Um, and it gets them a revenue source, right? If you're a MRF and you're trucking material out to a cogen plant, you're covering the trucking cost, and sometimes you're paying a tipping fee to get rid of it. And suddenly we change that equation. We're like, hey, MRF, if you have our machines, suddenly you can sell a high-value material that's worth more than your trucking or your bark chips you're selling on the small side. Um, and so that's kind of very interesting. Um, and it's a way better story. Right. We'll say, hey, look, it's going back into the building versus up in the air with the carbon. Yeah, absolutely. So let me ask you a different question. You start this business, you're growing this business. What do your friends think or what do you do? Do people have, really understand what, what you're doing? Are they like, there goes Eric again. He's got some crazy <laughs> idea. This time he's going to change the world. Like, how do people react when they, you know, in your life when they hear what you're doing? That's definitely what my wife says. Um, and she says, yeah, I'll keep the steady job and you go do the crazy thing again, right? Um, and the friends are, but everybody's like, hey, it's cool. Um, you know, everybody gets it. Everybody's pulled nails. You know, every conference we go to, everywhere we talk with, everybody's like, oh, man, I pulled nails. I did that as an intern. It was my dad's company or whatever. Everybody's done it. Um, and nobody said, yeah, I want to do that 40 hours a week. Um, so everybody loves the story. Um, everybody loves what we're doing, which is awesome. That really helps on the sales side and the fundraising side and getting people on board with you when they like what you're doing. Um, and it's cool. You know, we have architects that want to come do their lunch and learns at our offices because they're like, cool, we can do it with a robot. Um, and so our business development, <laughs> Ashley loves it. She's like, this is way easier. I don't have to go buy lunch and take it to an architect's firm. They want to come to our shop because um, it's different and it's solving a sustainability problem. Uh, yeah, I think that that's a, that's a huge dynamic. And one of the things that we ask our guests on this show is, you know, given this type of solution, Eric, that you have, you know, and thinking about scale and gaining more adoption and you know, building a movement, right, of more people who are aligned with either decarbonizing the built environment, uh, solving climate change. There's this other added component here that, that you've mentioned that we think about in terms of housing affordability or just even affordability of materials in general. How do you think about when, when you're building this business of getting more, maybe in your case, it's of, of spreading the word more, but businesses like yours or businesses like Planted, how do you think about getting more buy-in so these solutions can, can scale up faster? Yeah, you know, that's a real challenge with those of us in the hardware world, right? Because you have a limitation on how fast you can innovate on the tech, right? You build a machine, you learn a ton from it, and then you're like, okay, let's take all that learning, go design the next iteration, and a couple quarters go by and the next one comes out and you test the heck out of it and beat it up and iterate a couple times. Uh, so it's a much slower process than you get with the SaaS world, right? In the SaaS world, I don't have to set anything aside, I just keep updating the code and it keeps getting better. Um, so on the hardware side, it's a much more managed, you know, controlled process with hardware to the point where once that hardware hits the economics, then it's like, okay, let's go take it to the field, right? Let's start renting these out to customers, get those early adopters on board. And we've got customers that are out applying for grants like a year ago. Like our machine wasn't even out of the shop. We were still pure R&D a year ago. And people are already like, okay, give us a budget number that we can put in a grant application. 
And I'm like, sure, here's my economic targets. I'll give you a number. <laughs> and we just learned a couple days ago that one of those municipalities secured a $1.1 million grant to go fund our machine for a couple years, um, which is awesome. And so we have our first client that's got their funding ready to go, and our goal is to get them a machine in about nine months, uh, which is fast in the hardware world. Right, we're just a touch over two years old, and the next nine months, within about three years, we're going to have our first production machine in a customer's hands, um, which is phenomenal. Um, but I think with this movement, you know, everybody wants to do good for the planet, right? Nobody goes out and says, "Hey, I want to trash it every day." And what we're in is essentially that tool provider place, where we can bring in a tool to solve a really hard problem. You know, when you look at the volume and the tons of material, it's a tough problem to solve. And we believe we've got a good solution for it. Absolutely. And I think when you have a solution like what you're working on that fits and, and enhances what people want to do, right, that either saves the money, fits, fits how they build, or fits how they demolish buildings, then that buy-in can really uh, take root and, and the business can, can really take off. And I think it's just having this conversation with you. And again, like I said, at the, the, the top of the conversation, I mean, it's very inspiring to hear, to, to hear your presentation. We were at Greenbelt together on a panel and to see your, your machine in person. And, and I just think that this is the type of solution that the world needs. So uh, I want to thank you for, for coming on the show and sharing your story with us. Awesome. Thank you very much for having me, Josh. And, you know, it's always great to connect with uh, fellow co-founders that are tackling these challenges because, you know, when you look at sustainability, it's a massive global problem and it's going to take a lot of tools to solve it. I agree. I think it's going to take building a movement. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Eric. Thanks again. We'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Josh.